The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, it's good to see you. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we will keep going through this great, great book. You know, every book in the Bible is great, obviously. We love them all. But something happens when you begin to study and you begin to get involved in another book of the Bible on a more regular basis. And just my love and my enjoyment of 1 Corinthians has grown just as we've gone through it. I've always known 1 Corinthians, okay. I've known like segments about it, okay. It's about, you know, I know Paul says, I want to know nothing among you except Christ and crucified. That's really great. And then I know there's stuff about church discipline and stuff about lawsuits and immorality. But as when we've been studying it from verse 1 of chapter 1 and now through and getting into 10, it's amazing to see how it's all fitting together and what the Lord is showing us. And what we'll see today and really what's and how this applies to what's happening in light of our culture is what we need to remember, guys, is that the Christian life isn't easy. The Christian life isn't easy. And I think people get sold to false gospel when they think that coming to Jesus means that everything's going to work out in your life the way that you expect. That's just not the case. Everything's not always going to go your way and everything's not just going to be all hunky-dory. That's just not the way it works. The Christian life is filled with difficulty. The Christian life is filled with suffering. The Christian life is filled with sacrifice. And the Christian life at times is filled with a lot of confusion. But his grace is sufficient for us. And his power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And why is it all so difficult? I thought I would have the peace that surpasses all understanding. What's going on here? You know what? That is true as well. But we have to remember is that we live in a fractured world, altered by sin and us included, that we are sinners, now saints, on the road to glory. And yes, Jesus is making all things new, but the road is bumpy along the way, as Paul calls it, the birth pangs of the new creation. And especially, and we will get into 1 Corinthians, but especially in light of the Supreme Court's decision on Friday, guys, they can... They can call whatever they want, whatever they want. But we who are believers and know the scriptures, we know the truth. And a Friday, Saturday, a three-day-old document does not change what we know to be written down in God's now everlasting word from Almighty God. And so for us as believers, we cannot take a posture of pride. Because we should not be surprised that sinners, that unbelievers, are going to act like unbelievers. So I'm not shocked this happened, and really neither should we. This is our culture is we don't live in a Christian country. We don't live in a Christian culture. These are the things that are going to be, keep coming our way. And what we have to remember is that we are not on the losing side. We didn't lose. We didn't lose anything. Our culture changed. Nothing's changed for us. Our ministry's the same. Our mission's the same. But if we allow ourselves to think that we lost, a few things will happen. We will either get angry, because you you get angry when you lose. So if we think we lost, we're going to get angry, and we're going to become unloving, and we're going to become hateful. And that is not the posture of the gospel. And we can't think that we're on the losing side, because if we think we lost... And then we're also going to panic. 
But that's not the posture of the gospel either. Be anxious for nothing, even Supreme Court decisions. For we know the Lord of hosts. And we know that everything is going to land and culminate. The entire arc of history is going to land on Jesus, the lamb who was slain, who was reigning from his throne, that far supersedes any bench seat in this country. So what do we do now? No matter what any court says, they can say whatever they want. But what they cannot do is make Jesus dead again. I hope you took to heart what we sang. Jesus reigns. He reigns. He reigns over all. And what we should be perceiving right now is a great cultural moment in our country for us. Is that, you know what? We really are in exile. It's been very easy to be a Christian in America. It's been very comfortable. Our values and good family values Traditional family values in America for decades, they jived. But now traditional family values in America are now against our values. And so our posture has changed, not one of anger, not one of pride, not one of panic, but we still continue the posture of love. We love our neighbors. It doesn't change. And what we need to be ready for is I'm sure we're going to discover more family members, more friends, more coworkers who maybe they're not going to pursue that kind of marriage, but they're going to be more in favor. They're going to be more vocal, and now they feel comfortable being more vocal because now it's been accepted nationally. And so what we have to do, we don't get angry. I think we should treat people who call themselves Christians, and we should have those, those, those discussions. But I'm already getting emails and texts and from, from you guys going, what do I do? What do I say? Here, here's a screenshot of what this person told me on Facebook. What should I do? Don't get involved in a Facebook argument. Number one, you have a lot more profitable things to do with your time than get involved in a Facebook argument. No one has ever been, I'm going to go on record. God is my witness. I bet no one has ever had their opinion changed on Facebook. Okay. So if that happens say, Hey, I would love to speak with you. I'd love, let's get dinner. Let's get lunch, come over. And I would love to talk, you know, just as, as friends. And here's what you have to do. Don't chicken out. You don't have to chicken out. You also don't have to get involved in every fray that comes your way. Be faithful, and the Lord will lead you. I trust that. Don't chicken out. Don't freak out. Just be faithful, and the Lord will be with you. It is going to become more pricey culturally for you to be a Christian. It will be for me. It will be for our church, and we'll be fine. Our brothers and sisters for centuries have been dealing with things like this. This is not the first time the church has ever been on the margins of society. And what's amazing to me is that, you know, all these close countries like Iran and, and other places where there's not supposed to be missionaries, no evangelizing, yet the church flourishes. And it seems like these closed countries were supposed to be no Christians. They're arresting pastors all the time. Because when, when the church is in exile and when the church is a minority, we tend to operate in massive power. And so I look forward to a great moment for you and for me to be great ministers of the gospel in our culture now because cultural Christianity is dying. It is on its deathbed. And what we will see over the next 10, five years is people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but now it's becoming more pricey to be a Christian and be like, "Eh, I don't know so much anymore. And the day will come when, like Matt Odom, one of our deacons, he's also an accountant in, in the Woodlands, Day's going to come where he his, hey, I know you're an accountant and you, you do my books, but I saw your picture on that church's website in Tomball. You go there? You're, you believe that? That's going to be coming for all of us. And people are asking me, are you going to have to do those weddings? I'm not. 
supposedly they have the provision there now, but who knows? But I don't care, so what? I'm ready to go to jail for whatever. Doesn't matter. I know you guys will send me great food and stuff. We'll be fine. You know, I could Skype, preach, whatever. I mean, we'll be fine. We're, we're going to be okay because Jesus reigns. Jesus is alive. Our mission hasn't changed. Our culture has. Our mission hasn't. We're still going to make disciples, and we're still going to make much of Jesus. And what we have to do now, here, here's what we do now. Here's our duty. We love our neighbors. Don't look down on them. We love them and seek to evangelize them. And I would encourage you, I think everyone in this church should read The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. I saw a couple people, like, I gotta find my pen. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I put it on Facebook. Um, amazing testimony uh, of her life and how she left and became a Christian. It's just amazing. You should read that and hear how just an elderly couple in their 70s just loved her. And eventually she came to faith. And so definitely read that book. Love your neighbors. And secondly, here's what we have to do. We have to, now's the time to no longer tolerate our marriages being antithetical to the gospel. Now is our moment to say, we need to have marriages that stand as lights in the darkness. I even read an article this past week that's saying polygamy's next, arguing for it. And secondly, they were making the case that actually gay marriages are better than uh, traditional marriages. So now our duty is when we evangelize, people come to faith, we disciple. Here's what marriage is. And we model it with our lives. Here's what a husband is like. Here's what a wife is supposed to be like. And we show the world our Christ-exalting, gospel-formed marriages. This is our moment. And we cannot lose it. The, the, the stakes are too high. The stakes are too high for us to tolerate being husbands that are jerks, being wives that are not submissive and, and being jerks. Th th this is our time for us to go, this is what Christianity is like. And this is what the truth that a risen Christ reigns. This is how we live. And so today, like every day, whenever we're wading into, Christ is still our focal point. Jesus is the center. His cross, his vacated tomb, his throne of grace, this is where we look. So no matter what happens in our country, we keep looking to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Nothing's changed for us. And just like in 1 Corinthians, where we're looking today, where we're gonna go is we follow Jesus. We follow our rock. And so in light of our, I mean, even we're gonna be so countercultural, it's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be amazing to see how the church flourishes in power because Jesus will build the church. I mean, I, I performed a wedding just last night and I'm reading the words of Christ from Mark 10. As God has set from the beginning, a man shall leave his father and be joined to his wife. Not spouse one and spouse two. This is our new reality. We follow Christ, not Caesar, no government, but Christ. So let's stand together in honor of Christ and our great God and Savior and read from 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1 down through 13. And here's what King Jesus says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you are able to endure it. Let's pray. Holy Father, now, would you help us to help us to live as lights in the darkness, to love our neighbors, to be gracious and to be kind, to be convictionally kind with your truth in all ways, in all places, in all seasons. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you and help us now to hear your prophetic word to us that we would not put you to the test and that we would listen and lean into the rock who is Christ and that we would not desire evil. So, Lord, meet us now. And it's in your mighty son's name we pray. Amen. Now, if I'm not I wouldn't say about my life, and I know my wife's here, she's going to agree totally, I'm not much of a daredevil. I, I like to play it safe. I'm not looking for any kind of major risk-taking activities. Friends asked me to go bungee jumping. I said, you crazy. I'm not doing that. I got a family. You're nuts. I'm not hanging off a rubber band on a bridge. Um, and even like water skiing, no, not doing it. I don't even like really swimming that much. It's just sinus stuff, but it's all really shaky to me. And right now, it's, maybe you've seen this at your house, it's wasp season. And I really don't like wasps. And they're, they're a past danger in my life. And then right now, like we have a detached garage, and so you leave our back door, head to the garage, and right above the garage, there was like six wasps all in battle array just looking at our door. And I thought, man, we have a problem. Um, we need to get guys out here with hazmat suits and like get that wasp nest. Out. I'm assuming there's a wasp nest. And it really all kind of goes back to, I remember being about four years old, got really overly confident like every little four-year-old boy does. And I saw this dead wasp on the water of the swimming pool. And I was laughing at it and like yelling at it, just four-year-old boy. And I'm splashing water on it. You're dead, wasp, you're dead. And I'm, I'm kicking it. And then all of a sudden, that winged spawn of Satan comes up and I look at it and go, oh, no. and I'm backing up, and it's looking at me, and I take off running what felt like a mile. And all of a sudden, I'm getting stung by more than just one. And before I know it, I'm laying down in the kitchen in my uncle's house, and my Hispanic grandmother's just rubbing garlic all over my head <laughs> for, for some reason. And I'm thinking about this yesterday. Because when we get overly confident, and we get, we get proud, and we think, I got this, I'm, I'm fine, Towards the dangers of sin, towards the dangers of this world, we will get stung. That's why, that's why Paul's writing in verse 12, take heed, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. 
Paul's giving us really amazing insights into our lives about these past dangers and even these present dangers of, of the exodus and, and overconfidence and our temptations. And so how do we live? How do we navigate them? Well, what he's going to tell us is that he's going to remind us of these past dangers in the exodus and bringing them to their present dangers today and, and ours too. And so what do we do? What Paul does is incredible. He brings us back to revisit the Old Testament and to learn from, not just even revisit the Old Testament, but this Christ-centered Old Testament. Look at verse one. So how do we avoid these past and present dangers? Verse one, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. And he talks about leading by Moses and the cloud and the sea and the spiritual food and the drink. Now, as Paul winds up to tell the Corinthians, beginning in verse six, how to live, his pastoral strategy, what he does here, I mean, picture this. He's talking to a group of Gentile Christians, and now his pastoral strategy is to remind them of a 2,000-year-old account of God's power and his faithfulness and his miraculous deliverance of the Israelites under Pharaoh's rule. He reminds them of walking through the Red Sea. He reminds them of the pillar of cloud and fire that led them out in the wilderness wanderings. He reminds them of the manna, the bread that came down from heaven. He reminds them of the water that came down from the rock. And this is all amazing. It's great stuff to remember, totally. But there's one word in verse one, just the three-letter word, that would make them perk up and like, whoa, really? And it's ought to make us perk up too. Verse one, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers. He didn't say the fathers. Our fathers. Their fathers now. Your fathers, Moses, Aaron, and Jethro, Joshua, these men, this story, Paul looks at these estranged Gentiles, these Corinthians who were former idolaters, former Artemis worshipers, and he looks at them and says, your fathers went through the Exodus. They have no connection to Moses. They have no rights to Moses. They have no rights to the Old Testament. And yet God, now God is looking at them and he's telling them, yes, you do. Your fathers went through. In Christ, the exodus is now their story. It's now their heritage. It's their new past. It's their new history. And yours too. None of us have any bloodline connection to Moses. But now God looks at you and me and says, our fathers, your fathers went through the Red Sea. It's your history. It's your, it's your real family history and past. It's your heritage. You get a new history. That's amazing. I mean, how else do you get? I, I want a new history. Unless you're entering the witness protection program, you don't get a new history. You don't get a new past. You don't get a new heritage. You don't get a new family line. But in Christ, you get a new past. Your history gets rewritten. You get a new future. This is now your story. The Exodus is yours. Paul's saying we should personalize the Old Testament. It's ours too. It's our family. And we learned from them. We learn from crazy Uncle Moses. Therefore, we shouldn't look at the Old Testament begrudgingly, but excitedly, expectantly. This is our story. I mean, look what Paul says in verse 6. Now, these things took place. What things? The rock, the, the bread, the wanderings, all these things took place as examples for us, for us. An example for you and for me. And look at verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example. That's verse 6. And Paul goes even further. But they were written down for our instruction. Do you see the orchestration of Almighty God for you and for me? 
The Exodus was real. It happened to Moses, real benefit to Moses and the Israelites, no doubt. And do you see God's superintended mercy that his purpose would be it would happen to them, Moses would write it down, and it would be delivered to you right now, today. God's plan the entire time. I'm doing it. I'm not just going to let it be history and just a tale that stays within Israel. No, I want Moses to write it down and to deliver it to Brad Smith in Tomball, Texas. It's written down for your instruction. I wrote it down for you. That past danger is now a lesson in your present. And I feel like there is a mountain of information we can learn from just verses 6 and 11. And I'll just give you three, just quickly. One, you are not irrelevant. You are not irrelevant to God. Your life, your situation, you are not overlooked. God wrote through Moses and by the Holy Spirit a detailed account of the plagues, of of the Red Sea, of the wilderness wanderings, the 40 years of wandering so that you could read and learn what it means to follow Jesus today. You are not overlooked. And secondly, how gracious and forward-thinking is our God writing it down for us for today. You're holding a book or a device that contains the words in the book that something that Moses wrote 4,000-ish years ago in the Exodus, written in Hebrew, and then translated to Greek, and then into like Latin and other languages, and then German, and then English, and then it's here. God's hand throughout the whole process written down for your instruction, for you to have. And last, I think we should just treasure the Bible so much because of these verses. We should treasure God's word. God wrote it down for our good, for our instruction, so we could honor him and follow him. I think this verse, verse 6 and verse 10, that should bring us into a new era of how we look at the Bible. God miraculously delivered this book to you. And we get sinfully bored with it. Try to look for shortcuts and loopholes. How how else could I grow? No, God says they were written down for your instruction, for your, to be an example to you. And what a privilege it is to read this book. It's amazing. I saw Ray Orland, he tweeted something like this and it just spawned this thought. I'll take what he said and augment it just for us today. When I think about Let's just think about the Exodus. That's what Paul's talking about, the book of Exodus. So Moses wrote Exodus. And then King David wrote Exodus. I mean, then King David read Exodus. And then Isaiah read Exodus. And then Jesus read Exodus. And Paul read Exodus. And Augustine read Exodus. And Luther and and Calvin and Spurgeon and, and Tyndale read Exodus, and then you and me, we can read Exodus, and we are in this amazing line of our fathers and our spiritual heroes that we are all reading and enjoying and learning from the same source. Treasure the book. It's our heritage too. We cling to this book. And a really powerful reason why we cling to this book, because what Paul says in verses one to five about this story is that Christ is central. Look what he says in in verse two. So all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. So he's reminding them of, they went through the Red Sea and and the cloud. And Paul says, this was like a baptism, that they went in through the waters with Moses and Moses led them. They were under Moses's leadership. 
And he says, and they ate this manna, this bread from the sky, Exodus 16. And Paul says, that's like spiritual food. It was real food. It was real bread that came out from the sky that they ate. So how is it spiritual food? Because there was another meaning tucked into that bread. There was another meaning tucked into that bread that came down from the sky. And then Paul reminds them of they drank the water from the rock in Exodus 17. So what is Paul getting at with all these imageries? And why is he comparing it to Christian things? Why is he comparing it to a baptism? Why is he comparing this? This is like the spiritual food and this is like a spiritual drink. Why? Verse four. Look at verse four. All drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Jesus was there. Jesus was with them. And the book of Jude says that Jesus is the one who led them out by the pillar of cloud and fire. And now Paul's saying, and Jesus is the one who gave them the water. The presence of Christ was among God's people meeting their needs. And this is amazing to me because it sheds a whole new light on the Exodus account and on how God dealt with his people. Without 1 Corinthians 10, you and I would never read Exodus and go, oh, well, clearly that's Jesus who's the rock. There's no indications except maybe one. When they're complaining about wanting water and they're just grumbling again and again and again, God says, okay, Moses, go over to that rock and I will stand before you on that rock and then hit the rock and water will flow. The Holy Spirit now reveals to Paul and to us that that rock was Christ. And when he is struck, when Christ was on the cross in our place before us, he was struck by God's wrath. He wasn't just struck by Romans. He was struck by God's wrath for our sins. And then we drink that spiritual drink of his blood, that blood that flows out of his body, giving us that spiritual drink by which now we can live. And now we have forgiveness of sins. And that's available to anyone in this room who would look to him and believe. And we look at the Old Testament and now we see our Christ. What we see, what, what is Paul doing? Why is he bringing up these Exodus accounts and he's showing us how Christ is involved and tying it to Jesus? He is showing us giving us handles for the Christian life. We were baptized, not into Moses, but into Christ. We were given bread from heaven, not manna, but the son of man who came down from heaven, the bread of life, and whoever eats of him shall have eternal life. We were given spiritual drink, not water from a rock, but blood from a rock. And whoever drinks of the blood of the new covenant will live forever. Christ is at the center. What we're seeing from the Old Testament amidst their past dangers and today and our present dangers and temptations is that Jesus is the only channel of God's mercy. It's always been. From Exodus to today, Exodus, Corinth, Tomball, Jesus is the only channel of God's mercy. And I encourage all of you to read John 6. John 6 is amazing how Jesus brings all this together. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So Jesus is giving these themes as well. But this, I picture Jesus pointing to himself, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And says, John 6 says, the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. I mean, Jesus is just pushing us hard into faith. Paul says they ate ate spiritual bread. It was real bread, but it was spiritual bread. And now Jesus says, the spiritual bread is real food. What's up is down. What's down is up. It seems like, what, what are we talking about here? Jesus is pushing us into faith, saying, when you take of my body, you believe in me, it is real food. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. For whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Eat the bread of Christ. Christ is the central figure of the Bible and of history, of everything. Jesus reorients the manna around himself. And he's not saying, and a lot of people think, oh, well, Jesus just kind of grabbed that metaphor. and It's like, oh, yeah, that kind of applies to me a little. No, no. Jesus is saying, the manna, it is about me. The whole time, God intended that it would be a shadow of me. And unless we eat of him, unless you have faith in him, unless you eat of that broken body and eat of his bread, and drink of his blood, his death in our place, to pay for our sins, you do not have life. So have you fed on him? And Jesus says in John 6, whoever feeds, present tense, whoever keeps on enduring feeding of me, not just one time, but right now, feeding on Christ, wanting to eat of his body and his blood. There is, he is alive and there is feasting to be had. Still believing in him, still drinking of him, still living by his blood. This is why we do communion every single week, because this is Christianity. That body and that blood, it's everything. And this is meant, as Paul's going to show us, to move us towards Christ's likeness, towards holiness, towards Christ's exalting lives. Because some of the Corinthians, they're going the opposite direction. They were taking their foot off the pedal. They were getting slack and pursuing holiness. If you remember a few weeks ago, they thought they'd be fine eating meat offered in the temples, you know, the meat offered in the temples to idols. We'll be fine. We can eat there. Paul's going to say later, you can eat the meat sold in the markets that's from the temples, but don't eat in the temples because you join in the table of demons and you'll get into idolatry. But they didn't see a big deal with doing all that. They didn't see a big deal with going to the temple prostitutes. They thought, I'm securing Christ. Who cares? What's the big deal? They thought, we've experienced some great Christian stuff. We were baptized. We have spiritual gifts. We do communion. So what? I'm fine. That's why Paul's bringing this up. No, no, so did your forefathers. They were baptized into Moses. They had the spiritual drink too. And yet, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So what's Paul doing? He's saying, look, some, you've been baptized. You take communion. But the way you're living, you're in real danger. 
because you're not following Christ. Paul brings up these past dangers of the Exodus, not to just show us the miracles, but to also give us warnings. He's showing them we should learn, but it's also a cautionary tale to to not let up in pursuing holiness. To not let up in pursuing holiness. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Even though they experienced these things, he's saying when they are overthrown, it means their bodies were literally strewn over the wilderness. There's dead bodies everywhere. Because God sent judgment, and God sent his wrath, and God sent his discipline upon them. And notice how Paul's writing. Verse 1, he says, all, verse 2, all, verse 3, all drank, all ate, all baptized, and then verse 5, now with most. And then verse 7, all the way down, don't be idolaters like some of them. Don't indulge in immorality like some of them. Don't put Christ to the test like some of them. So he goes from all, all, all to some, some, some. Because this is exactly what's happening in the church at Corinth. They had these party lines drawn. We're the more superior Christians. We've experienced more of Christ. These are the weaker ones. They don't really know what's up. And Paul says, no, you're all together in Christ. And now he turns and says, and then some of you are acting like they were. And maybe that's some of us today. Some of you are acting like what we're reading today. He's subtly talking about the church at Corinth. And he's subtly talking about us. We're all baptized into Christ and we're all following Jesus, but we need to hear the cautions that we should not live like some of them did. Verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us. Okay, why? That we might not desire evil as they did. Exodus serves as an encouragement, yes, and as a caution that to look at their actions and that we should be thinking, I need to avoid that. I need to avoid that way of living. I need to avoid that way of thinking because we are in great danger when we think, ah, I'll just dabble in this a little. I know it's sin, but you know, I, I'm just going to do it. It's no big deal. I'll just let grace abound. That same thing happened in the Old Testament. Should we continue on in sin that grace may abound? Paul says Romans 6, no. Paul's reminding us that God is not a pushover. Discipline can come swiftly in your life. And discipline can come swiftly upon God's people. And yes, we are secure in Christ. And because of that security, it fleshes out into pursuing holiness. And though we do stand justified with Christ and we are secure in him, we are accepted because of Christ, there are no vertical abrasions. It doesn't mean there will be no horizontal discipline and horizontal consequence. This is what Paul's saying, avoid that. And he starts with verse seven. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's reminding them of the golden calf in Exodus 32. Moses is up on Sinai and getting the Ten Commandments from God, and the people are freaking out, going, Moses is taking too long. I don't think he's coming back. What are we going to do? Let's worship an idol. That's our default mode. When we turn from the living God, we turn to other things. And they begin to get immoral with each other. This always happens. This is why Paul says, don't go to the idol temples because whatever you look at, whatever you behold, you become. You behold an idol, you become like the idol. You behold Christ, you become like Christ in his character. Now look at verse eight. 
He warns them again. We must, we must not, and here are these must nots. So do not, verse eight, must not, nine, must not. We need to heed these. And if our doctrine of grace does not allow for us to hear clearly and plainly without putting asterisks, must nots from God, we need to change our doctrine of grace. We don't understand grace correctly because grace is also bringing us discipline. Titus 2 says that God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness, not to permit ungodliness, but to renounce it. And this is what Paul's doing. We've got to renounce these things. We must not indulge in sexual morality. As some of them did and fell, 23,000 in a single day. This is Numbers 25. They're worshiping Baal and involved in Baal worship, and then plagues swept through and killed them. Verse 9, this is from Numbers 21. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. This is in Numbers 21, during their wilderness wanderings, and they are complaining, the Israelites, again, like crazy, grumbling. That's why verse 10 says, and don't grumble. And they're whining, you, God, you brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? You don't love us. You brought us out of Egypt just so you can make a spectacle of us. The food you give us, we hate it. It stinks. Exactly. We loathe this worthless food. We loathe this pyrotechnic, miraculous bread from heaven. I hate it, you know? And what does God say? The first time when they complain, he says, here's some water. The next time they complain, he sends fiery serpents to discipline them. And what does he do then? They ask for forgiveness. And God says, Moses, fashion a serpent, hold it up, and anyone who looks upon the serpent will be saved. And what does Paul say here? They put Christ to the test. He didn't say, you know, the Father, but they were testing Jesus himself. And then what does God do? He gives them a symbol of Christ. It says, look to him and you will be saved. Are we putting Christ to the test like they did? They were questioning him, rebelling against him, grumbling against him. And when Paul writes, they put Christ to the test, I feel like well, there should be, when I read this, there's got to be a woe, a woeness about it when we read things like this. If, if, there's, if we don't have a woeness about us when we are reading the Bible and seeing Jesus in all of his glory, we're not reading correctly. If you read your Bible and you're, you don't ever sit back and go, hmm, wow, slow down. You're not reading the way you're supposed to be reading. If there isn't gratitude, worship, and wonder toward Christ, there will be grumbling, wandering, and questioning. Every time. If you're grumbling in your life, it's because you're not glorifying. If you're questioning him, it's because you're not worshiping him. If there isn't gratitude, worship, and wonder toward Christ, there will be grumbling and wandering and questioning. They tested God's character, questioning him, got cynical towards him, fed up with God's ways. And Paul's instruction to us is do not test him. Don't trifle with him. Don't see how much you can get away with. This is really significant in our lives, especially for younger people and, and single people. Start dating and the questions come up, you know, how far is too far? How much? Do not put Christ to the test. Pursue holiness. Are you testing him today? Seeing how long you can do this until he exposes it. How long can I, you know, kind of flirt with this until it backfires? 
Are you discontent? Are, are you complaining? Are, are you envious? I mean, look at the sins that Paul mentions. This is incredible. Verse seven, don't be an idolater. Okay, yeah, I agree with that. Don't be immoral. Got it. Verse nine, don't test him. Oh, of course, check. Verse 10, don't complain. What? I mean, there should be like, that feels out of place. The other ones, those are really big. Yeah, idolatry, no, huge. Immorality, of course. Testing him, oh, I wouldn't imagine that. Complaining, I'm just letting off steam. Why does Paul bring these up? And the others seem so flagrant. This one seems really minuscule. I think it's fascinating that Paul brings this up. Why? Because no sin is excusable. No sin gets a free pass. Oh, I know, you're just blowing off steam, Jeff. It's all right, buddy. You can rant all you want on Facebook about how ridiculous President Obama is. It's fine, no worries. This is, this is not the way of the kingdom. No sin is excusable. Complaining is a subtle attack on God's character, just like they were, on his plans, on his care, on his sovereignty. When you complain, when we worry and we complain and we vent, God must not care. He must be clueless. He, maybe he doesn't love me. If he, I mean, look, at he really loves them. Look at how great their life is. Look how terrible my life is. God, if you just do what I want, we'd both be doing better. Complaining is a passive, aggressive assault on God's throne of grace. We must listen and heed these words because of verse 12. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's a legitimate warning from us, for us, from Paul. You think you stand, you think you're good, you think you're tough, take heed lest you fall. Really, if you modernize this, this is, this is a modern way of just saying, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> I mean, that's really what he's saying. Take heed, watch out, pay attention. You better be careful. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And if we're thinking along the lines of, I'm okay, you know, I'm pretty mature, I think I'm fine. I know that website has inappropriate stuff on it, but, you know, I'm trying to find something else. I'll be okay. I can, I can watch that movie. It doesn't affect me. I know there's some scenes I should never see that are sinful, but it's okay. I know that, that show on HBO, it's really good, and it's got a lot of scenes that are way inappropriate, but it's got a great storyline. doesn't affect me. Take heed, lest you fall. Do not let up on your pursuit of holiness you will never discover towing the line is ever worth it. Where are we? In our lives, as Paul says in Romans, make no provision for the flesh. Why are we putting little asterisks on that? Yeah, I agree with that, except on this area of my life and this area and how I do this. Verse 12 is a word of warning to us in this room. who We aren't struggling with sin, but we're just rolling with it. We're just, we're just going wrong with it. Instead of trembling at God's word, we're cavalier. We're overconfident. It's fine. And Paul's instruction from God is take heed lest you fall. Fall meaning in that you will displease God and you may even show that you don't know God by living this way. Verse 12 is a warning to the self-righteous. And maybe you're sitting here going, that's not me. 
I really do struggle with sin. I do try to fight against it. I'm, I'm, I war against it. I'm not going heavy-handed. I, I, I struggle. Verse 13 is for you. Verse, verse 12 is to the self-righteous. Verse 13 is a word of encouragement to those who know they are unrighteous and they need help. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So you see how verse 12 and verse 13, verse 12 is very hard to, in your face. You got to hear this, take heed lest you fall. And then the Bible says different things to different people who are in different places. This is obvious. You see it all over scripture. Words to parents, words to fathers, words to married. I think this is the word here. Word to those who are going heavy into sin and don't care, take heed lest you fall. And then 13 is a word to those who, I'm struggling. It is a struggle for me. I feel beaten down. I feel like I'm a loser. I can't kick this. I, don't, I, I hate the things that I'm doing. Verse 13 is for you. It's a word of hope to you. What you're facing and what we struggle with is not new. There is no temptation that's overtaking you that is not common to man. You're not facing some new hybrid sin. Every temptation is worldwide, historical, common to all. And so Paul says, when you're in that battle, if you're in that there and you go, I, I don't want to do this, I hate this, I don't want to, and these would be some of the people in Corinth, I don't want to continue in idolatry, I don't want to be immoral, I, I don't want to put Christ at the test. So Paul reminds us, you need theology in this moment. And what do you need? God is faithful. The greatest hope in our life in the midst of temptation is to know that God is faithful. You look to God. You don't look to you. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through this. That never works. Ever. Look to God. God's faithful. God, help me. What does he say? He'll provide the way of escape that you'll be able to endure it. Sometimes it'll be instant. Oh, it's over. Oh, praise the Lord. Like Joseph, I'm running. Or sometimes God is building your character and you will endure Think about our Lord, 40 days in the wilderness of him enduring temptations. And he did that. He didn't do, when he went up against Satan, those 40 days, yes, he gave us a model for quoting scripture, but that, him enduring against Satan means he also gave us the power in himself to endure temptation. The power is not in us. That's why when the Bible says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, we should read that not as, he'll never give you more than you can handle. That's not what that means. God is frequently giving us more than we can handle. You are, giving, you are getting more than you can handle right now. Every, every waking moment, we're getting more than we can handle. But now, since it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us, we find that his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. So, yes, our ability, our lives are now. Why? Because they are in Christ, who is our wisdom, who is our life. What we should learn from this verse is that you are never in a situation where you just have to cave in, where you're stuck. I, I just got to sin. It's too much. You're never there. In Christ, you're never there. You're never in a position where all you can do is sin because God is faithful. He will provide the way of escape. So don't let up on your pursuit of holiness. If I were to take verse 12 and verse 13 and make a, like a scene, I, I could, maybe this would be helpful for you to help see how this works. I think of two guys two men who profess to know Christ and they're both involved in the same sin. They both have dealings with the same sin. And one guy, he can't wait to do it. He's thinking about it. He's like, I know it's wrong, but 
whew, man, he's daydreaming about it. He can't wait to get home, get on his computer and get his magazines or whatever he's looking at. He, he can't wait to do it. Daydreaming about it. Verse 12 is for him. Take heed lest you fall. The other guy hates the sin. It's a war in his mind. He hates it. It it grieves him. He doesn't want to do it. He wants nothing to do it. He's he's praying, weeps over sin. He's confessing. It's a real battle. And some of us are in both of us. And some of us, we know it's sin, don't care. We're in real danger. Some of us, we know it, we hate it, and we don't want anything to do with it. Verse 13 is for you. God is faithful. He'll provide the way of escape so you'll be able to endure it. Look to him. Heed the warning and hear the hope. Wherever you are, whichever side you are, you need to hear. And do not put Christ to the test. Wherever we are today with Christ, look to him. Maybe you're not a Christian and Jesus' death and his resurrection, he's inviting you to look to him. And he can be your rock. Anyone can look. Anyone can look. A one-year-old has the ability just to look. You don't, you don't have to be this amazing person to look. Look to him. Spiritual looking to him. And you shall be saved. God is faithful. Make 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If you're battling today, make it a beacon of hope in your battles. Make it your tonic. That when you feel it closing in, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God help me. He is faithful. We find our refuge from the sting of sin in Christ. Toppling over our confidence and our ability and looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Christ is our rock. And let's look to him again. Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today in vain, I invite you to to come forward. Lord Jesus, now, Christ, our rock, our redeemer. Would you help us now by your spirit to show us or maybe we are putting you to the test or we are sinning heavy-handedly and openly and would you bring repentance to us? Maybe even sins that only you and that we know about. Help us now, Lord Jesus that we want to honor you. We want to make much of you. And Lord, would you, with those in the room who you know, would you help them to take heed lest they fall, that you are not to be trifled with. And may your grace abound and transform, training us to renounce ungodliness as we wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's in his mighty name that we pray, amen.